once again to uh, acknowledge those who are uh, participating in the evening but not here in physical presence. Uh, As we come back from our break time and you come back from your break time. Oh, 18 years ago or so, um, not long after um, the this center was opened, I was uh, had the privilege of, for the first time, sitting with the, the man who was destined to become uh, uh, my teacher, this monk named Ajahn Sumedho, Longpa Sumedho. And um, uh, we had, uh, we, we invited him to come teach a retreat here he was at that time the head of uh, the, the the Theravada monastery in England, and um, we had invited him over, and he'd come over to teach. And we had scheduled a few days with the, the teaching uh, community, our teacher council members, to spend a few time, days with him. And um, I was very struck by him during this time that we were with him. And so I was really looking forward to um, uh, whatever the the theme of the retreat would be, what we would explore during the 10-day when it would be a residential retreat and I'd be sitting, you know, with everyone else for this 10 days. Because he had, uh, his, um, he was so clear and clear in this way about suffering and non-suffering and he really, like, you were always right at this point of like, oh, this is the Dharma. There wasn't, there wasn't all these big elaborate themes and discussions. It was like, right here. And uh, so this is in the upper hall. Again, it's all those many years ago. And so I'm sitting there the first night just waiting to hear what we're going to be uh, learning together. And he says, well, this whole retreat I'm going to be exploring with us all together the Four Noble Truths. And I was going, the Four Noble Truths? Oh, no. Because I I had, of course, heard endless teachings, you know, for 15 years on the Four Noble Truths. So, okay. I'm still grateful to be with him. And um, he then proceeded to describe the Four Noble Truths in a way I had never heard, never been exposed to in all of those years of hearing Dhamma talks on the Four Noble Truths. And his reference point was a uh, presentation of the Four Noble Truths in a text called the Samyutta Nikaya, in which the Four Noble Truths are presented not as like a philosophical statement or a descriptive statement of reality, but rather as practice. That the Four Noble Truths are to be understood through the cultivation of three insights for each of these Four Noble Truths so that there is a total of 12 insights. This was a very uh, fresh understanding for me and uh, I had a lot of time with the Four Noble Truths that I'd already done. So it really gave me uh, 
uh, whole opportunity to have a, a beginner's mind and you experience don't know mind it's referred to in, in uh, the Korean Buddhist practice and these insights are structured in this way that uh, the first of the four noble truths is that there is dukkha the first insight that there is dukkha dukkha meaning that it's unsatisfactory it's unreliable and um, uh, involves you know a, a kind of there's a tension around it it's unsatisfactory it's unreliable this moment where dukkha is entwined in the moments it is not the teaching that everything about life is dukkha dukkha is usually translated as suffering but suffering is not an encompassing term at all uh, some uh, uh, monks uh, interpreted it as stress I, I'm not, uh, it's not my favorite word to use. I like the unreliable, the unsatisfactoriness, meaning in the end not reliable, in the end not satisfying. And so this, this, this uh, first insight is that you're told there is dukkha. And so the Buddhist said this, so you go, in my life experience, is that true? Is, is, is there finally around my experience the, the difficult experiences or the other experiences that yeah, there is there is some experience like this that's involved and the in the this teaching of the that there is dukkha there's the dukkha that's physical and emotional that when we have physical pain that's dukkha that's not satisfying that's not reliable that, that's not uh, uh, that's not bringing some sort of lasting sense of well-being so there is physical and emotional suffering, discomfort, unreliability, stress, whatever one wants to use. And then the second kind of dukkha is the kind of dukkha that's associated with that everything's changing so that you never get finished with anything your whole life. You always have to wash your hands one more time, cook another meal, you know, do the laundry again. You know, get your hair cut that, that, that you never get, in, that, that you've gotten your sleep taken care of. Now I don't have to worry about sleep anymore. You always have to get enough sleep. You always have to, that there is this unrelentingness of change. You can never get, oh, this is just what I want. And then what you want the next moment is different. Ouch. There's, there's no, there's, you can never get it where it's just, you get it just the way you want it and it stays that way forever. You and, and your, your friend are really on the same page. And then you're not a little bit. Or your friend's not available or you're not available or something else changed. There's, it's never just right in any kind of way that lasts. There can be moments of this, but it doesn't last. Nothing really lasts. And that way of, the, the, it's always changing. And so therefore we always have to kind of be making that effort again. And then the third kind of dukkha that's described is that even in that moment when it is really just the way we want it, if we look closely, where am I in this moment? What, what, who's here? Who's experiencing this moment? Where is that person? Can I find that person in the next moment? 
Is it my hand? Is it my body? Is it my mind? Where is it? Where is it? And it's always moving around. It doesn't stay. You, you can't, you can't find the there there when you look really closely. And that's very unnerving. So unnerving that usually we don't notice that. It's too unnerving. So these are the three kinds of dukkha that's described. And so in this, the first understanding, the first level of understanding of, of realizing, of realization would be, oh, is this true or not? Do I see there's, there could be something to this? And would it possibly help me to understand this? Uh, that I could then have a, a, a more satisfying life, a greater sense of well-being, not grasp so much, not be so afraid, not be so resentful, whatever it may be. So, hmm, is that worth doing, exploring or not? It's an intellectual proposition. It's a reflective proposition, more accurately stated. And then this, the second realization, the second practice of, of the first noble truth that there is dukkha is that you feel the ouch of it. That you're willing to stand under the, uh, the ouch. That you're willing to be present here and now with, with dukkha as you're feeling it in any given moment. Not that you go look for the dukkha. Don't have to do that. Anybody doubt that? <laughs> so, so when the duke, when that feeling arises, that's, again, it can be a big feeling or a small feeling, you're willing to stand under it, you're willing to stay with it, you're willing to bear it. And that is what is meant by feeling the ouch of it. And then the third aspect, the third realization of this first noble truth is to not just have felt the ouch, but once you've felt the ouch and you have this context that's been presented of it, that you integrate it into your life. It's what I term, this is my language, not the Buddha's, not the Venerable Sumedho, is knowing you know. And so your life is shaped by what you know you know. You can know things, but you don't really integrate it. So you make the same mistake over and over again, right? You marry the same person three times. They happen to have different color hair or a little different body shape. But you basically marry the... And oftentimes it's your mother or your father, worse still, <laughs> three times. So uh, so this, this importance of integrating, of knowing you know. And in the text it says... Suffering has been, that dukkha has been understood. That's the way it's stated in the text. Very brief and concise. You know that suffering has been understood. It is now part of your knowledge. Not as information, but as knowledge. You really know it. That's the full realization of this. Big difference between information and knowledge. Big, big 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 difference information is 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 we know the facts knowledge is we know the implication of those facts mastery is being able to live that out so we move from an information level of our experience to a knowledge level to a mastery level so that's the first noble truth and there's three insights of the of the first noble truth I got it. I knew that this was very important to me. And uh, it, uh, 
in that just early on in the retreat, I start fell, I started to feel my practice changing, my practice being reshaped. I was I was moving to a deeper knowledge that would lead more towards mastery than what I'd experienced previously. I had great gratitude for this. Great gratitude. And then the second noble truth, as he went on to explain, is that there is a cause of suffering as an understanding. It's just a presentation that, that you first look at it, there's a cause of suffering. That our relationship to dukkha makes a difference. And in that it's, it's described as a, a kind of thirsting. That the cause of dukkha is this thirsting, the thirsting wanting. Wanting uh, for sense pleasures to be the way we want them to be, all of our sense experiences to be the way we want them to be. And wanting to become something that we're not. Or wanting this moment to become something that it's not. Or we're wanting not to be in this moment, sitting in the dental chair with a very uh, difficult operation. Or sitting in a meeting where you're basically being implicitly criticized. Or when you're, I've never done this, but on online dating, when however you would feel rejected in online dating, I don't quite know how that works, but whatever that would be. Um, so, um, so this, this, the, 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 from all the sense gates to include the mind, including the brain, uh, that wanting that to be certain ways, that's one kind of thirst. Then wanting to be something we're not in this moment, more rested, uh, better able to do, uh, uh, to be more popular, to be smarter, whatever this wanting to be something that way that's not present right now and then not wanting to be not wanting to be stuck in this meeting not wanting to be um, uh, with our in-laws in this moment or whatever it might be and uh, so that's that's to be thought about hmm. it's, it's, I, yes I can feel that I go through those moments when I'm wanting I'm, I'm, I'm wanting I'm wanting something more. You know, like you've had a bite of food and it's really good. And instead of being content, instead of contentment arising, what arises is greed. Oh, I want another bite. Oh, wonder what's for dessert. It can be so ordinary in that way. And then, so we, we consider that and say, is this worth exploring? Does this seem true enough to me that it might hold some knowledge for me if I do it as a practice, because the second realization of each of the four noble truths is that of a practice. That it's practice. So the practice of the first noble truth is to fill the ouch of the dukkha. The practice of the second noble truth is to let loose of the cause of the dukkha. So that momentarily we stop wanting to have the senses be other than it is. We are letting loose of the thirst and we're willing to be present where? Here. When? Now. Just now. Here. Now. And, and be with the experience as it is. We temporarily, very briefly, abandon. And when I say briefly, like, that may be as long as it lasts. But just for that moment, we've interrupted this endless flow 
Because what we find in that is that although there is physical pain, our objection to the physical pain, our thirst for it to be otherwise, is uh, so much of the difficulty of physical pain. Our demand that we not have a broken heart, our demand that we have a different past than we had, our thirst for that is what this this way we're relating to the experience is most uh, the most difficult part of the suffering. And so that we learn there's a difference between conditions, pleasant or unpleasant, and how we're relating to those, those conditions. And we discover that by letting loose of this thirst, this wanting it to be a certain way, sense-wise, or becoming, or not being. And we practice that. We practice letting loose of that thirst. And then again, there is this arising of a realization that this has been done. I have actually done that enough times, over and over again, over enough years, enough sitting, enough in daily life, that, oh, I really know this is true. This is not a theory anymore to me. This is a lived truth that I have affirmed for myself in my observation. The way I have moved my attention back to each moment so that I really know. I have knowledge, not information now. I have knowledge that this is so. And we're reshaped by it. We meet the moment differently. Because we have wisdom. And as part of that wisdom is the compassion. Because when we see how we create so much of our own suffering, we gradually start to have compassion for this being that that has uh, not known another way. And so, wow, to see how our habits of mind, how this uh, this thirsting, it just, it's impersonal the way it causes suffering. And gradually, without having to like going through a pity party for ourselves, the heart softens through seeing the suffering and there is a natural response, a natural response of compassion. It's not, um, it's not some sort of a induced concept. It's spontaneous. The way you have compassion when you see a child running around and falling down and they scratch their knee and it's bleeding a little or something, your heart, your heart goes out to that child or the child who gets afraid or if you've ever had to watch uh, a parent being uh, uh, semi-cruel to a child, you're, you may go into huge anger, but your compassion goes out to that child. It's natural. That same compassion is a natural arising for us when we see how we're caught, when we see how we are clinging, our thirst is binding us to this to this degree of uncomfortableness, this degree of wanting, this degree of rejecting the moment in a way that causes so much suffering. Again, it's all to be seen. A.E. Pasico, it's said, uh, in, in uh, the, uh, the, the language... Epasico, come see for yourself. So it's not a, um, it's not something that you believe in. It's something that you go might be true. Therefore, I will investigate, starting with this curiosity, 
And there's what's called the seven awakening factors that we cultivate that allows us to, to investigate for ourselves. And so to realize these, these three realizations of the second noble truth. So, and then we do the same thing with the third noble truth and the fourth noble truth and that we do three insights with each of those which I'm not going to go into tonight, but the same thing happens. For me, part of what was so uh, practice-changing and life-changing about this is the four noble truths ceased to be uh, nouns and they became for me the four ennobling truths. They were ennobling. There was when one can stand under the dukkha, one gains a kind of dignity because one is willing to be in the moment. That shows courage that shows courage. It has um, it gives dignity to our experience, the mundanity of our lives even take on a different feeling when we've started to live life from understanding moment to moment of life is best understood as practice rather than as simply getting what we want. It doesn't mean that we don't strive to improve, to get what we want, to get things for our children. But the the moment to moment experience of it takes on a different flavor. Oh, the way to relate to moment to moment in life was very different than I thought. It's different than in the movies. It's different than uh, uh, what I saw on the playground, what I may have observed adults doing as a child that I started aping. The way I was conditioned to raise. Oh, there's this other way of viewing the moment that in the end turns out turns out not to be less effective in getting what I want, but actually empowers my ability to function in the world in time, not necessarily instantly, and may in time change what we want, but it actually empowers us to get what we want, as long as we're talking ethical in both comparisons. Um, Because inevitably this practice leads us to be more ethical, not perfectly ethical, but more ethical, it's a long time before we get anywhere what would be called perfection but we move in a direction we feel the wholesomeness of that we feel the that inherent goodness that I ask you to notice in the meditation when we are clear on our aspiration and by being here tonight you were lining up with your aspiration and that that there's a that when we're doing that there's some there's a goodness that's felt a uh, it's a well-being that's felt. And uh, this this practice in this way brings this. I'm being quite uh, practical here with, with this. Again, I'm not trying to convince you of this. Just to say this in terms of the way it is. It's just the way it is. You, you know, you don't know. How do you know? You go out and try it. And then you find out for yourself. Is it the way it is or not? If not, you reject it. No one is asking you to believe, but to see for yourself, to go, is there a better way to live? To quote Thich Nhat Hanh, that there is a better way to live. So, um, uh, this four ennobling truths, we're ennobled when we can stay stand under suffering. We're ennobled when we can do the practice of letting go of our thirst. 
The thirst isn't going to go away, but we don't feed it in this moment. Just this very moment, I can choose not to feed it. The next moment, I'm too caught in it again. My great practice of this is being stuck on airplanes, somewhat in airline terminals, but really on airplanes because uh, all of my 20s and 30s, I was constantly on airplanes, just constantly. I had uh, two jobs in two different cities, and so I commuted every week. And then I, from one or the other, I was flying to other cities in this country or in Europe. And I just hated being stuck on the tarmac with these, the flight delays. Just hated it. My, uh, my uh, energetic body just did not do well in, in, airlines, in airplanes to begin with. And so I would have to go through this over and over again. Philip, this is just practice. It's just practice. And, and there was a lot of, uh, 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 in those days, my body was far more tight than it is now. So the physical, there was really physical pain that was part of the emotional rejection of it. And yet I had to practice it over and over again because I wanted to achieve what I achieved by getting on those airplanes. So I watched over and over again that I was the cause of my own suffering by my wanting is, is all quite useful. Not pleasant, but useful. So, um, uh, as, as this starts to happen and we start to feel uh, uh, more possibility, our life becomes uh, interesting in a new way. We're all plenty well oriented to, towards getting what we were, to trying to achieve a successful relationship. Having, finding someone to be in relationship with if that's what we want and then uh, uh, about knowing we have to work at it or working out, realizing we have to work at it. The same with friendship, the same with our job, the same with creative expression, the same with our hobbies, whatever they are, our relationship to nature, how we're honoring the earth, how we are in terms of understanding our relationship and to people that uh, have had different backgrounds than us both uh, in terms of education, affluence, uh, skin color, all of these different experiences. We, we're, we're having to work all of that out, all of us are. And so we, we know that, but when we start to work with all of those things from this perspective, there is this shift. So over time, um, I wrote about all of this, and um, uh, totally based on the Long Paul Sameda, his his wonderful teachings, and I called it Dancing with Life. And this book's been around a long time now. And um, uh, uh, there's online, uh, lots of online Dharma talks from it, but there's a 52-week series that you can go to my website, Dharma Wisdom, and get a 52-week teaching. Every week you get a teaching. It's all free just, just to do this. And um, uh, I found that this was just really, really true for me in my experience. So in my, with, I was talking with my friend and colleague uh, on Sunday about this, and I brought up something that's in the book, a whole chapter on the book about uh, the role of innocence and how we bear the truth of dukkha, that practicing of dukkha. And the role 
role of innocence in letting go. The role of innocence. So, um, for just a moment, uh, when I use this word innocence, what do you hear? What do you hear? Like, what does that mean to you? Uh, maybe uh, someone could pass around the mic for a moment. So, do we have a volunteer? Yes, up here in front. If you come up here. Childlike. Childlike. Thank you. Did you have one? <laughs> the gentleman here. No blame. No blame. And behind you. No judgment. No blame. No judgment. Childlike. Very natural arising of, of innocence. So, next question for you as a reflection. How do you feel about yourself? What is your relationship to your own innocence? Right here, right now. It's not like I'm saying that's your fixed belief, but right now. So you're just wanting to know right now this kind of turning towards that uh, Longpour Samaita was so great at doing. Just turn towards. Uh, what is, uh, what is, uh, do you feel innocent? Do you feel not innocent? Does it make you uncomfortable, this looking at yourself in the context of innocence? Or does it feel good? Just what is it? Or it's confusing or it's a mixed bag? I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to analyze everything. So um, if I'm present in the moment, I feel innocent. If I'm thinking about yesterday or tomorrow, then I feel like I'm a little bit guilty of something. Interesting. Interesting. So when he's present in the moment, he feels innocent. And when he's thinking about, but don't leave him yet. We'll stay there with him. <laughs> Since he likes to analyze. Uh, so then, uh, when you, when you, like, just in that moment that I ask you, do you, do you have a sense of a, of a place of innocence in you? Yes. And you have a place where you don't feel innocent? Yes. Okay. As a felt sense. I use that word felt sense a lot. And that's why I'm asking that. So thank you. Now you can travel again. <laughs> and so back in the back, if we will, that way. Friendly. The feeling of friend being friendly toward myself. Friendly toward yourself. So that kind of meta feeling, the the loving kindness feeling, the friendness feeling is innocence. It's very light and kind. It's light and kind. Thank you. Um, So the word innocence has such color and grace and purity and positivity. Where my mind goes, sadly... 
is to the corruption of innocence and to, you know, sort of life affecting or um, impacting that innocence um, in a way that that poor little innocent being, us always as, as children, you know, didn't ask for. And uh, with the climate event yesterday and the UN summit coming up on climate right. and da da da, and so much happening in our world, the corruption of innocence is what I'd love to figure out a way to okay. uh, make peace Thank with. Thank you. So, this it's a kind of interesting about innocence. Uh, yes, we uh, many of us think of children being so innocent, and we were all children. And our fathers and mothers and our leaders were all children who were all innocents. And so then where does it all go? What happens to it? What happens to it? So I want to, um, again, being uh, respectful here of each person's view and opinion around innocence, to um, suggest, uh, and again, I described this at some length in the book, but... um, uh, this the difference between what I would term naive innocence, that innocence of the child, the, the innocence that has not yet met experience. Does that make sense to you? That you're innocent because you've not yet met the experience or your mind hasn't yet had certain uh, feelings of selfishness or fear or uh, whatever it may be, anger. And it's not gotten locked into that. The anger, if you get anger, it's like a little temporary anger. It's not like a narrative anger where you've gotten locked into that. That that I would, I'm terming, uh, a naive innocence. It's where, that's the kind of innocence where it has not yet been, uh, it's not been through the fire of experience. And yes, children have a lot of that. And that's, it's so beautiful to see. And we've all been children, so we've all had a lot of, of that innocence. We lost some of that experience, that, some of that innocence at varying ages. Some of us longer, some of us shorter. Because, uh, different kinds of experiences happen for each of us. And we call that our story our narrative, those experiences meeting our innocence and uh, we become other than uh, naive innocence. But there's another kind of experience of innocence that I have felt in me and I've now worked with thousands of people and not just in uh, this work of teaching Dhamma but also in the work that I do helping people in change and transition in their lives. So I, I've had the great honor, the privilege of, of knowing so many lives quite in, intimately. And what I have witnessed, you may have a different experience, but what I have witnessed is that there is this other kind of innocence that I call conscious innocence or experienced innocence and that is where we have we have seen what i would term the opposites taken from cg on that that there's that we have good intentions and bad intentions 
and uh, mixed intentions. This is I use that phrase because that's that's from one of the and the Majjhima Nikaya that this person is asking the Buddha about. Well, what happens when you have when you have bad intentions? And the Buddha says, oh, what's well, bad results happen to you. Well, what happens when you have good intentions? And he says, oh, well, then good things happen. And he says, well, what happens if my intentions are mixed? And then he says, well, mixed things happen. <laughs> so the Buddha was just reflecting this back. And so uh, 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 we have mixed motive a lot. As we get, as, as our innocence becomes uh, uh, seasoned by our experience is somewhat shaped, but does not have to be so shaped. But it is seasoned by. But that innocence does not go away. It does not go away. It is in us. From a, 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 the Dharma point of view, if you want to get, uh, if you want to say where that innocence is, like, where, like tonight, you may not be feeling so great about yourself and going, where's that innocence is in me? How can there be innocence when there's been this, all this experience? Ultimately, it is in the very nature of awareness itself. Which, at least this again is in my experience, that in, when, when we are moving away from gain and loss, Pain and pleasure, what the Buddha called the four worldly winds, praise and blame, fame and ill repute, all of the opposites that C.G. Young so uh, wonderfully describes uh, when he says that the purpose of the second half of the life, of, our, of an adult life, is to live with the opposite, to learn how to reconcile the opposites. To learn how to reconcile the opposites. And that is how we move beyond this grasping and where do we come back to experienced innocence in that way because we're no longer defined by our wanting and our not wanting we we can live with both of them and that's what we do when we uh, practice dhamma and uh, again for me i found that most uh, uh, fully available in the uh, the practice of the 12 insights of the ennobling truth, the four ennobling truths. You might find it in a whole other way. You might find it in metta. You might find it in compassion practice. You might find it in um, uh, looking at the hindrances for you. It's, there's no one way. So this, there, there is a kind of innocence that if when we drop, when the mind becomes still and it's not moving towards any object, so it's present in the moment and not moving towards any object. That is its most innocent moment. It's mind-heart, this bodhicitta, that the, the innocence is, can be found. It can be rediscovered. I've worked with a number of people um, who did un, uh, unskillful things, really unskillful things. In some instances, what we would consider pretty horrible things. And um, uh, even in those situations, when the mind is cognitive, there's a kind of uh, psychopathology that the, there's, there's not anyone home to do the work. And that's a whole other problem, and I'm not trained in that, and I have no, no experience, no wisdom about that. But in, in the, the, even when we have been very unskillful, and it has tormented us, 
we can find our way back to this innocence. We can find our way back. Even in those situations where we have been the recipient of really unskillful acts, uh, either uh, out of ignorance or out of deliberate motivation, and we have in some way lost our sense of our own innocence by what's been heaped upon us, we can find our way back. And again, this is not this isn't sentimental what I'm suggesting. I'm not a sentimental person. I have passion, but it's not in the form of sentiment. It's in the form of, of, of really moving towards having well-being, moving towards having choice, moving towards being able to be fully present here and now. And so in that way, uh, 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 we there is a reconfiguration of redeeming of a of a major characteristic that we feel as though we were born with and that's true and we can come into a new more full relationship with it through the dhamma than we've ever known even when we were our most innocent because we were innocent but not present not fully present. We were not yet mature enough to be fully present. And so it is in this lived process that we become ennobled in a way that we're returned to our innocence. Now, what does this have to do with uh, the Four Noble Truths, particularly having to do with the First Noble Truth? It's interesting. When you are being with dukkha, when you're feeling the ouch of dukkha, everybody knows what I mean about the ouch, right? Everyone can recognize your own ouch. You, there may be ways that you've not yet recognized that's an ouch, but at least you know some of the ways. When your body is really hurting, when someone's really being nasty to you, you know that's an ouch. When, when you are, uh, when you just, do something that you're so embarrassed about or feel so regretful about, that's an ouch. So we all basically know the territory of ouch. We may not have explored it so much that we can recognize it every house in the ouch neighborhood, but we do know the ouch. So uh, when, when we are staying present with the dukkha of life, of, of, through our own our own actions or through the actions of others or just conditions, climate change being a condition, a really tough condition to stay present for. It's very hard to, to, to really stay present for that because it, makes, it can so often make us feel so helpless or turn us into rage or all of these different things or our whole emotional life can be hijacked by that. But so when we stay present, what we, what, what actually bears, what, st- what, what stands under that showering of dukkha? What stands under it? In my experience, and again, your experience is your own, the more and more you practice, the more you realize that it's your innocence that stands under the dukkha. It's your innocence that bears the truth of dukkha. It's your innocence. Because you're, but not your naive innocence, 
but your experienced innocence. When we are involved in uh, the thirst, that the wanting this, wanting that, a lot of that suffering is what has been termed a kind of neurotic suffering. You know, it's a kind of a, a clinging suffering that is that is uh, the uh, the ego trying to grab hold of, of of life in a way that's not possible. But when we're with just the fact that it's just the truth that. Duke is part of this, you know, that I'm going to be stuck on airplanes, you know, and it's not going to feel good. It's, that's, but that's it. There's not, nothing compounds what we call papancha mind. It doesn't go anywhere. This is unpleasant. Um, I had a, uh, I had a very bad health situation arise in January and uh, a huge amount of physical suffering in it. And one of the th- ways that I knew my practice was that I had so much equanimity around this. It really, really hurt, but it wa- but it just hurt. It did not. It did not compound in my mind. And uh, I was going, "Thank you, practice." Now, it had nothing to do with character. It had to do with practice. So, um, as you as you start to see that. That the goodness, that goodness that I pointed to in the practice with you, with your aspiration, why are you here tonight? That when you get lined up with that aspiration of, of that you wish to be free, that you wish to have choice in your life, that you wish this well-being that's not based on getting what you want, because that's not a reliable strategy for well-being, as you may have noticed, that there is a, uh, that there is a, that, that goodness is what stays present for the unpleasant. That very aspiration that brought you here, that you're in that heart, your heart quality is what is is having the suffering. Uh, in the Christian tradition, that was that was the story of, of Christ on, on the cross. Uh, it, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, there's all of these Jataka tales when the, the Buddha was like a ox and he would just serve. He just served. There's a Jataka tale. This is a folk tale. When one time he was, he was before he was the Buddha, uh, he was robbed by these two people, and they uh, and they got afraid, and they said, "Oh gosh, we got to kill him." And the Buddha would not allow them to kill him. He would keep uh, he, his body would regenerate instantly because he did not want these. Two individuals to have to bear the karma of having killed a future Buddha. So this, um, the this, our innocence, our experienced innocence, can do all of these wonderful things. We can we can find a way to let go of clinging. We can find a way to let go of clinging to our past. Something that is that we have carried around for us, beat ourselves with it, or it's been this burden on our back. We can, we can, through our presence in the here and now, this intended presence, this very directed attention, that we can be, uh, 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 we can be redeemed from the past. Redeemed meaning what? Not that it's still not there. Not that we're not characterized by that past, but we're no longer defined by it. That is this role of bringing your innocence 
into your practice. You don't have to use the four double truths as the frame of reference. But to allow in this question of, is this an inquiry for me? Do I, am I interested in how, how the, that part of me that seems most wholesome, can I let that part of me stand under the dukkha, to recognize the truth of dukkha? Can I let that part of me be present to feel the, the wanting mind, this thirst, that, that, is the, that is the second noble truth? Uh, we we I talk about clinging attachment. Can that innocent part of me know my wanting? That innocent part won't condemn you. It won't get mad at you. It it won't judge you. It's too innocent. Even in its even though it's experienced, its nature isn't that. Its nature is that compassion. That's why the moment feels good when you're in the moment. Because you're you're touching that in that way. There is a mysterious aspect to this, but that mysterious aspect takes care of itself. You do not need to worry about that. Uh, your your uh, uh, your uh, your cultivation here, if you're interested in this kind of an exploration at all. And again, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm giving you a, yet one more way of the many ways to open to Dhamma is to like, oh, I really, I do want to, I want to know that, that experienced innocence in me. I really want to know that. It takes courage to live from your experienced innocence. Not that naive innocence that's still in there in you. Because you still have naive innocence probably of some kind or another. That's not the same thing. Because there's a kind of faux innocence, that naive innocence that um, in certain circles in uh, in, uh, the United States where it's kind of, uh, uh, there's a, a, a presentation of, oh, I'm just kind of unblemished person. I do not present myself as an unblemished person, as you can tell. And um, I don't think it actually is so helpful to think present. But there is parts of you that really is unblemished. But it's mixed in with this experienced innocence. If you bring that experienced innocence as to your basis of what you're... When you're focusing on, uh, oh, I'm restless or... uh, 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 Is that person mad at me? Rather than like your your threatened part, you just bring. Oh well, is that is it possible that person? You bring in the experienced innocent one to have the experience. There's a whole bunch of yous in there. You know that already. I assume everyone knows that by now. Everyone seems old enough here to to realize that you've got a whole committee in there. And so you deliberately cultivate noticing. What your experience is right now from this from this experienced innocence? Oh, look at my wanting mind. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm really jealous about this person. You know, your friend of me, the person that you're friends with, but you're also more than a little competitive, or you resent what they have at times, or they resent what you have, or it goes back and forth. You know those frenemies. Um, that. Uh, 
you, you, you bring your innocence to that. I really want to know what this feels like. Who would want to know that? It is your innocence that would be willing, that would want to know it. Because that experienced innocence is what can carry the aspiration towards freedom. So often people come to the Dhamma from uh, wanting to escape dukkha. That's called coming through the Dhamma gate of dukkha. Or this this thing of everything changing is so... uh, uh, It's so... Uh, upsetting to them, it's so uneasy that they come through this, this Dhamma gate of Anicca. Or they come through uh, this uh, gate of Anatta, the Dhamma gate of Anatta. Now, this not being self, it's not even necessarily knowing that that's the gate they're coming through, just this unease, this kind of existential unease. And those are the kind of three traditional gates that are described in that way. Your, your, your experienced innocence, every person, you're not the exception to what I'm saying based on my experience. You find out for yourself. Every person that I'm seeing in this moment, you can choose to live much more this way as what you notice when you're present in the here and now that you, you're cultivating that experienced innocence. You know what's true. You're not naive. But there is this part of you that's not caught in whatever you're being caught in. It's just not caught in it. It's just not. It can see truthfully. It can fill your experience. There is part of you that can fill your experience without all the rationalization, without all the, the rejecting you because you find yourself unacceptable. All of that. It's possible here. This courage to be that way this queer, this uh, this quality of heart, um, is uh, uh, is a very empowering, at least for some people, in practice. And so that is the um, that is the invitation for you this evening to uh, to cultivate this more. To say, well, what does that mean for yourself? And find it for yourself that you want to know, you want to see the difference between. Uh, uh, this uh, naive innocence and this experienced innocence, this conscious innocence. Is it really in me? Is it, does he know what he's talking about? Does it really apply to me? If so, well, what happens if I really hang out here? I'm going to hang out here and see. Oh, well, sometimes I can't. Sometimes I forget this completely. I just forget. I'm not that person. I'm not actually in touch with this conscious innocence. But gradually, we stay more in touch with it. Though when we're doing Dhamma, we're cultivating it. So it becomes more easy to do. And again, from my view of making daily life practice rather than your time on the cushion as practice, that's formal practice. Walking around mindfulness is making daily life your practice. Walking around mindfulness that has intention, they're joined at the hip, and is infused with with uh, compassion. Uh, Jack likes to call it loving awareness, and I like to call it compassion. Um, that there's this compassion that's a prior, that it's just arising with the mindfulness that I'm prepared to be compassionate even to my worst moments of wanting. When we have that presence in that way, we're so much less likely to succumb 
in speech and action and our internal thoughts, which can be so devastating to us. It can wreck a day. We can bend, we can have speech that there, nobody would find flaw in it. Nobody can find flaw in our actions. But if anyone could hear our internal speech, we could see how we're not we're treating ourselves as though we have no innocence. We're condemning ourselves, or we're condemning others, or we're lost in this or that. That so we become aware of our internal speech, and we're meeting it from this point of view of our innocence. I have goodness. I have goodness, and the proof of it is the number of times you're kind. The number of times that you automatically help out, you hold the door, you wish someone well. You hurt when you read about something in the paper. You're sorry that someone had to have that terrible experience. That's coming from your innocence. That's your experienced innocence. So to start with, to see that difference, to see, am I willing to say that there is a kind of innocence that is not that not childlike, that is not blameless, that isn't finding fault. But it is much more nuanced kind of innocence. I've just never bothered to cultivate this crop I have grown through my years of experience. I didn't realize it was a crop, so I never turned around and harvested it. And through this mindfulness in this way, you can harvest your crop. Thank you for your attention with this. We're going to take just a moment in silence and then the bell will ring. Right now, drop into that experienced innocence. It's all over the room, energetically. However you're experiencing it, it's like this. Experienced innocence is like this. In another moment, it will be known differently. It's learning to turn attention in that direction, here and now, that allows you to receive like you receive the breath in the meditation. One last reflection. How could the Brahma Viharas, how could metta and karuna, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, that mudita feeling, and that equanimity, the pekka, how could they possibly exist if there were not experienced innocence? Do you need further proof to choose to explore?
I'm wanting to hear what each of you did over the next few days with this. But I'm letting loose of that. <laughs> Safe driving. Remember to turn right at the end of the, the Spirit Rock driveway. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.